0: Hello. In today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Tommy Wood, and we discussed the things that are necessary to achieve good results in terms of your health, in terms of weight loss, and the things that he's noticed working with professional athletes with Formula One. And then, at the end, we discussed the little, the little things he likes to play around with, and the little tools that don't really have a giant impact, but people like to over-exaggerate compared to the things that are actually important. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get straight into it. All right, welcome Tommy. Hi. So I know a bit about you, and you might have heard of me in the past because we've sort of worked together. Yeah. So if you start off, because you have a fairly complex history.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that that's true. So. Um... Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me to be on. Um, And uh, it's great. It's great to connect. You're right that we've sort of interacted sort of through other people for various reasons in the past, but um, but not sort of like directly talked. So. So, yeah, it's really nice to be here. Um, I you're right. I do have a fairly complex history, if you can call it that that Um, I currently um, live and work in Seattle in the U.S. I'm a, a professor of pediatrics. I mainly do research into neonatal and pediatric brain injury, um, which then all of a sudden people are going to be like, well, why on earth is he on this podcast? So <laughs> uh, I, I obviously lived and worked most of my time in the UK. That's where I, that's where I grew up. That's where I did most of my training. So I, I have a, an undergraduate degree in uh, natural sciences and biochemistry. I then went to medical school. Um, I worked in central London as a junior doctor for a couple of years. Then I got um, an invitation to go to Norway and work for a pr- professor I'd previously done some work for and do a PhD. Um, so I went and did that, and then I then I moved over to the US. And most, like I said, most of my research is in the brain injury arena, uh, but during that time, particularly uh, when I was at medical school, uh, I spent a lot of time coaching athletes, mainly rowers, but some other athletes i ran circuit training classes. I did fitness classes for the medical school football team. Um, and I became really interested in how, you know, I can make a better athlete. Like, what can we do in terms of helping people perform sustainably, particularly because most of the people that I worked with were also trying to be doctors or, were, you know, studying full time. And so busy people and myself trying to perform, um, competed in CrossFit, powerlifting, ultra endurance racing. Um, and so I spent a lot of time looking at um, diet and various training methods. And then at the same time, particularly during medical school, um, tried to solve a problem of what causes multiple sclerosis, which again sounds kind of random. But my um, my stepbrother at the time is the same age as me, had just just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and we kind of approached it as an engineering problem. So like, how can we there's obviously the system, the system is broken, the inputs aren't correct for some reason. Yep. Um, and then the output is multiple sclerosis. So how can we can we solve that problem thinking about things that way? And we came up with this really nice um, sort of system that encompasses all the things that you might think about in terms of what you might want to do to keep somebody optimally healthy. Um, and that includes diet, environmental exposures, sleep, there's obviously a genetic component, but all those things sort of come together. And if you apply that, um, I think you can see some benefits in chronic disease, but it also, you know, most of the things that you need to make a sick person healthy are also the things that you need to make an athlete perform optimally. Although, you know, the, these are things that just the human requires. So I spend a lot of time working both with athletes and with chronic disease patients. And when like sort of the end of my PhD towards uh, when I moved and then the first couple of years when I was in Seattle, I worked as the chief scientific officer of a company called Nourish Balance Thrive which mainly again works with athletes with various health issues trying to solve those and then help those guys perform for a long period of time because these are people who you know maybe they're masters athletes or they want to you know they want to keep competing into their 40s 50s 60s right so how do we keep them not just performing well but for a long period of time so that's what that's what we focused on and that's essentially where I am today so I do um, both still the, the brain injury stuff but I still work with various athlete groups so I'm I'm um, on the scientific advisory board of a company called Hints to Performance, which means that I get to work with the majority of the current Formula One drivers, which is super cool. Nice. Um, yeah, and yeah. we're doing sort of like the diet and lifestyle stuff. Um, so, so yeah.
0: So is your family from Norway? Or did you just decide to go to Oslo because of your professor?
1: Yeah, so she was. she is Norwegian. Uh, she was a professor at the University of Bristol. I uh, grew up in Bristol, and so I did some work there, like in her lab, as an undergrad, just in the summers. And then she moved back to Norway. Uh, but yeah. my my stepdad is Norwegian, and so I have Norwegian family in that respect. And then my then my mom side of the family were all Icelandic. So I ah
0: okay, <laughs> yeah, amazing place, Norway. I always go back every year if I can. So just out of curiosity, how did you? Well, because a lot of people that work in health and fitness get into the industry because, or medicine, because of something that happened to a family member or because they have a health issue or something along those lines. What made you want to go down the path of medicine in the first place before you got into rowing and all that in university? Do you know or was it just something you picked or did you have a specific goal Or dream in your childhood that made you want to go down that route?
1: Yeah, that's that that is a really good question. It's kind of a combination of serendipity and, you know, like a specific drive that I suddenly found. And and I actually think that so I did things the slow way, right? I did undergrad first, then I did graduate entry medicine. Um it's very similar to how they do it in the US. And I think that that actually prepares you much better like you're much re- you're it's much more likely that you know what you want to be as an adult when you're 21 22 than when you're like 17 and finishing your A levels right yeah, sure. um, so so I'm glad I'm definitely glad I did it that way and when I was sort of finishing up secondary school I was quite um, you know particularly sort of like 16 to 17 18 I was not particularly fit at all like I'd done zero sport like my sport was how many chocolate digestives can I eat in front of the TV <laughs> while I do my homework? Um, and I was great at that. Um, and so then sort of as I was like 18, leaving leaving secondary school, I did a gap year. Um, and then I, for various reasons, just like started going to the gym and it became a bit of an obsession. Like I've definitely developed what we would now call orthorexia and I trained every day and I just like did everything wrong. Like you always would. I read men's health and I was like, these, you know. I'm only going to be sexy when I have like three percent body fat all that all that nonsense (laughs) um and so then that kind of took me into my undergrad and that stuff sort of continued there and then so I was definitely interested in in health and and performance not I wasn't I was wrong about most things but I was interested very interested and then towards the end I had a place to do a master's degree so my I, I went to Cambridge for my undergrad and then I you can sort of tack on an optional fourth year to get a master's. And I had a spot on the course to do that. But a friend of mine was like, I think I'm going to go to med school. And I was like, Oh yeah. yeah, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll do that too. And she didn't end up going to med school. Actually, she did a law conversion course. Now she's a lawyer. Um, but then sort of, as I started to think about it, I, you know, I put in these applications and I started, you know, I went to interviews and people asked me, you know, why do you want to be a doctor? And everybody says, Oh, to help people. But, In reality, at that point, I'd still kind of fixed my—you know—I'd managed to dramatically improve my body composition and my performance and and my health, even if I'd done it through not the best means. Um, And I was like, there must be some way to help other people do this. And at the time, like medicine was the way that I thought I was going to do that. Now, of course, you can't do that as a doctor—you don't have the time or the resources to do it. And I know that now, but that was kind of the goal. So it was it wasn't the same as you know a lot of big people in this space are like had a really severe health issue and had to like completely figure out themselves and i've been lucky enough to, you know touch wood that that hasn't happened to me yet so there's kind of there's kind of an element of my own personal story in there um, and then a, a little bit of you know every every sort of step of my career somebody said how about this i'm like oh yeah that sounds interesting it was the same with the phd you know i, I wasn't sure what i wanted to specialize in after my foundation training and then this professor turns up, she's like, do you want to do a PhD? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? So, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of led me in various ways, so, which is great. And so often just like saying yes to a cool opportunity has been really beneficial as well. For sure.
0: So you've had a lot of experience working with the general public and professional athletes. And of course now F1. So what would be the things that were most surprising to you? In the sense that you noticed, but you didn't expect beforehand. So for me, for example, I worked as a personal trainer in London for about five years. And after a while, you get the same. So for example, I'd get different clients from different backgrounds. Um, but a lot of the time, they would all have a very similar lifestyle. or they'd, it, it was A lot of their problems were all down to a very similar thing. So for you, did you find anything after a while that jumped out at you in the same way that you didn't expect to find in the first place,
1: yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's 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 slightly different for the the two populations that yeah. I guess I have the most exposure to. So so in the athletes that I worked with, they're often you know a lot of them were endurance athletes. They're often Taipei personalities. Um, they're usually in some kind of like high power stressful job at the same time, and you know they they think that competing in an Ironman every two months is gonna like be everything in addition to you know trying to maintain a family life which is basically impossible um but so it's that kind of person and and when you recommend something they're like yes i'll do it i'll document it i'll have a wearable that will tell me about it um and so in in those people i think what i wasn't surprised by or i shouldn't have been surprised by because i did it myself is that there's just far too much restriction um and that can be dietary uh you're definitely dietary and and usually driven by the confusion there is in in terms of how people should eat um definitely too little sleep too little recovery um and then you know restricting time with their family because you know they're off they're off competing i I mean i can i just like i always think of this one did like an inter introductory session with a uh, with a guy he had like sent his blood tests he was trying to improve his performance in iron man and he was like had an iron man in I think, like a, a different country every three months or something and, and like, i was looking at his blood tests and i was looking at his history and i was like the first thing that came to my mind is what's going to happen to this guy is he's going to get divorced because he's never home with his wife and kids like that's the most important thing that i could see like i don't like his blood test results are just like so far down in terms of the important things in life um so, so that's like super common. Um, we saw loads of people trying to restrict protein and carbohydrates and calories and train 20 hours a week. Um, uh, it just doesn't work. Um, and then on, on the other side, in terms of like a more general population, I think there is a lot of confusion again in terms of what people should do. Like I want to be healthier. Um, I know I should sleep better, eat better, move more. I may not know exactly what, that entails but i know i should do those things but like getting people to actually do it is the hard part so it's not a knowledge deficit right it's not people like people know that they can and should eat better even if there's some confusion about like i said what they should do but it's getting people to do it so for the for most people it's a behavior change problem it's not a knowledge deficit and i think that's the most important thing that people are starting to to figure out but it's still you know, there's far too much stuff on social media where people are just like, well, I'll just give you all this information and therefore you will fix all your problems. Oh, it just doesn't work yeah. like that. So so those those yeah. are like the two the, the two trends that I saw most frequently.
0: It's... it's super interesting that you say that because the the first type you described is essentially what happened to me. I was always obsessed with performance and sport and training and trying to improve performance in every single way possible which obviously (laughs) eventually even though I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time led me to now to what I do now but and then when I was actually working as a personal trainer I just worked ridiculous hours and I sacrificed social life just to pump up business shall we say as much as possible as well as training ridiculous hours And I think ultimately what helped me recover was just realising the fact that I was under-eating. Because I was trying to be so perfect that I was just eating loads of vegetables and everything I was doing in terms of nutrition was ultra, ultra healthy. But because of that, my calorie intake ended up being much lower than it should have been, most likely. And then when I started to force myself to, to eat less well, (laughs) should <laughs> say um and sacrifice some vegetables for just at least at the time pile in carbs things started to get better but the behavior change aspect is i think the thing that people should really pick up on and you're right it's the confusion and this is something i wanted to mention anyway that i wanted to discuss with you and i get this question all the time from clients all the time which is things like Should I be going keto? Should I be going vegan? Should I be going vegetarian? For example, my friend only ate once a day and was doing keto and got this great result. Should I be doing the same thing? So really, it's just taking the extremes because you think it's just going to make things much easier when ultimately it'll just make the whole process so much harder. So from a health perspective or even from a weight loss perspective, what are the simple factors? Well, I mean... Always was the same thing, but what are the simple factors that you think people can integrate long-term to look good and feel good about themselves?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, and and uh, you're right. I'm sure I'll say all the things that you've all, all said and the reason why I'm not an internet celebrity is because all of my advice is super boring, right? I don't have <laughs> like a super sexy story or this is the diet I'm going to sell that's going to fix all your problems. Um, but I think I'm right because it's just, you know, what, what we require. So, um, uh, sleep is super yep. important and, and sleep includes circadian rhythm. So it's light during the day and a good amount of light during the day and then darkness at night, both incredibly important. Um, and then, you know, movement, uh, social connection, some kind of way to improve our distress tolerance. And that can be through training, meditation, you know, there's lots of ways to do that. And then diet obviously. And when you focus on diet, I think if you look at all the evidence and all the arguments and they, they should all form a cohesive story. And I think that they do. And the most important thing is to improve diet quality and to yep. improve diet quality, everything else basically falls out and falls into place. And yes, you can manipulate macronutrients and micronutrients and where your food is coming from but as long as you if you've improved diet quality almost all of that will happen automatically and you also especially if you're doing those other things as well you get to a point where like your appetite regulation makes sense and like this is something that we've completely destroyed with sleep deprivation and modern processed foods so just like eat food that looks like actual food vegetables meat eggs um dairy like as it comes from the plant or the animal that that you are eating consuming yeah so like if you do that Vast, like, that's the Pareto principle. You know, get 80% for 20% of what you're going to do. And, and like, that's where the benefit's going to be. That's, that's, that's it.
0: It's interesting because people are always willing to sacrifice sleep, especially when I was working in London. It's the thing that most people gave up. And, of course, it makes everything that much harder. And because if you're not sleeping enough, then you crave junk all day. And then on top of that, you're stressed. And to deal with this stress, you just eat more. And suddenly you end up in this cycle where losing weight or getting healthy is just <laughs> ridiculously hard. And then when someone gets it into their head to go, okay, for the next one or two weeks, I will sleep a little bit more and I'll sleep a good amount so that at least I'm not shattered in the morning or I don't need co- three coffees to actually just live my life, then suddenly everything just becomes easier. And I remember specifically one client who said that when he got enough sleep, he just didn't argue with people anymore and then suddenly when he got enough sleep because he was so on edge before all these little arguments just weren't important anymore this is why I always say you need to get enough sleep because then food becomes easier training becomes easier and the start of the whole behavior change chain just becomes more straightforward
1: yeah, I have a I have a good friend uh, James Hewitt who does a lot of work looking at cognitive performance, and he's doing he's done some studies and is doing more studies looking at um, various factors of executive function in sort of like high functioning executives. You know, again, like super stressed <laughs> kind of office worker, um, and like the most important thing if you want to have good executive function and not well, a be a douchebag or b you know and argue with your colleagues is like just sleep. And there's multiple ways to try to so like. I mean, sleep. Sleep is magical. Uh, but what's lucky, but now is it's kind of becoming sexy. You know, Matthew Walker and his book Why We Sleep, and you know he's like the you know he's the Berkeley professor, and he's also got you know, the the Americans love him because he's got a sexy British accent and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So so like it it's um it's it's happening, uh, but slowly. But I'm I'm really glad that people are starting to think about sleep because you know until like five years ago, right, it was just nobody
0: nobody worried about it. It's amusing you say that because I think that's the first time on the tube in London. I saw adverts for a health book and then suddenly there were huge posters for why we sleep and tons of people were reading it and one thing that crops out crops up every now and again especially in the UK is sort of the blame my genes aspect a little bit where it's become more, pe- more, more common for people to just say oh it's genetic my family's overweight so I am. Um, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, it's a hundred percent nonsense. Just like complete nonsense. Um, that's my that's my highline thought. You might want some details. Um, so so weight is uh, is a perfect example. So um, and actually, I, I just I I, I talked I done some talks about this during this year, and I just submitted a, a paper kind of looking at my uh, my analysis of this. Um, but so if we focus on weight gain and obesity, so there's um, and we'll sort of like start with one gene and, and work our way up. So, the the most common and probably the single, and we'll talk about single nucleotide polymorphisms, right? SNPs, common changes in your genes that lots of people have that are associated with disease risk. And so, the FTO gene, it's called the fat and uh, the fat mass and obesity related protein. Um, yep. It has something to do with appetite regulation, we think, and then maybe some other things in other cells. Um, there's a certain SNP in that gene that's there's, there's probably the strongest correlated to weight now on average in a western society people who have that SNP are going to be like slightly heavier have a slightly higher bmi increased risk of being um uh, overweight or obese but when you actually look at the magnitude of that effect in a full population which has a huge amount of variability your fto genotype accounts for about 0.2 percent of your bmi which is basically like whether you had a glass of water before you weighed yourself in the morning or not, right? It's, 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 it's almost, they're just like completely irrelevant in terms of actual weight. So like on average, statistically, yes, you may be slightly heavier, but in terms of the magnitude of that is tiny. Um, and interestingly, there's a paper that came out um, a couple of years ago, which looked at the FTO genotypes, the SNPs, before and after the Second World War, and it's only after the Second World War that it's associated with, with weight with weight gain or a, a greater weight, which basically says, yes, if you have a certain FTO SNP, you might have a slightly increased chance of being overweight or obese, but it's all driven by the environment that you put yourself in, right? It's all driven by the way that we don't sleep, eat, don't move in the post-war environment. So if you just don't do that, right, you sleep and you move and, and you eat real food. That prob- like the genes don't mean anything anymore, yeah. Um, and and we see that even as we start to create what we call polygenic risk scores. So that's like multiple SNPs associated with obesity. And so um, if you, so, then there was another paper that, that came out again a few years ago. The eight SNPs now most associated with obesity. Um, and even though like even if like your genotype there accounts for about two percent of your very vari- of the of of your BMI. Right. Again, it's tiny tiny amounts. Then you know, last year a paper came out that looked at 141 SNPs, so like 141 different variations associated with obesity. That only accounts for 13% of your BMI, right? So I mean, these are tiny, tiny amounts. The other 87% is completely dominated by what you do in and and the environment you create around yourself. And even and then when you do that, that 13% probably doesn't even count anymore because it's only in the context of this Western environment that we're, that we're, you know, investigating people in, like you are studying people from the U.S., uh, UK biobank. These are people who on average are already overweight just because of the, because of the environment, not to do with genetics. So, so yes, if you're going to eat and not sleep and not move and be stressed, like everybody else in the U S and the UK, then your genes have a tiny effect. If you don't do that, and you construct a, like a healthy environment around yourself, the genetics essentially
0: are meaningless. That was one of the things that I found really interesting when I went to Taiwan initially, is that almost no one is overweight. I think there was maybe one overweight person who was a foreigner. But it's a really inactive population. A lot of the people I knew only did about two or 3,000 steps a day because they took the bus there and the bus back but otherwise they didn't really do anything but what I really noticed and I don't know if this is the cultural aspect was that when people were full it doesn't matter how much was left on their on their plate or in their bowl they just didn't eat anymore and it's something and it's maybe maybe the same thing that I was taught as a kid as well which is always finish your plate and then the servings of course getting bigger And if you go to the US, for example, the servings are much bigger than they are in France, for example. So you just end up eating more and more and more and more. So like you said, it's entirely environmental. Basically everyone I know, um, who I haven't worked with as a client, um, every one of their family members is also overweight. And like you said, I don't think it's the genetic factor. It's just the environment because that's what you're taught to eat. That's how you're taught to eat just becomes normal when you see your family members behave a certain way and if they're stressed and they react by eating a cake then you end up doing a very similar thing for you this is something i always find very interesting what are the things that you incorporate into your life that are maybe outside of the basic things that we just discussed like sleep movement and eating well is there anything anything you like to play around with like blue blocking glasses cold therapy uh called exposure i mean red light therapy or sauna is there anything you'd like to to play around with or that you just like to test
1: yeah so i because of like the world that i exist in there's a lot of things that i've kind of played with over oh. the years and there are and you know so all the things you mentioned. so like if you go from i've tried out most different supplements nootropics cold exposure, red light therapy, like I've tr- I've tried all of that. None of them have really become like a, uh, a regular thing in my, in my routine just because I, either the, the activation energy required to do it was too great. Um, yeah. And so, so I don't do regular co- like cold baths. Not, I, I think they're great. And I think they're, they can be very beneficial. I just don't have an easy way to do it. And my wife won't let me put a chest freezer full of water in my garage that I can jump in. She's just like, no, Tommy, that's not allowed. So, like, sometimes there's things that I would quite like to do, but just practically, it's better to have a happy wife. Um, so, that's one thing. But, um, blue light blocking glasses, I definitely use every day. Um, I um, usually eat dinner definitely before seven ideally before like 6 6 30 and then i won't eat again until i go to sleep and i'm we're usually in bed by 9 p.m um yes. and then we're up at sort of 6 six thirty. that's when the dogs get up um and so like i make sure i get a, a like a good amount of time in bed Blue light blocking glasses at night light exposure to the day i guess we did talk about those things the other the other stuff obviously outside of training is um the gym at the university where i'll train two or three days a week has a sauna so after i train i'll go and get in the sauna both to like sweat and because there's some nice data on um, sauna in terms of disease risk but then also in terms of augmenting um the effects of training so uh, and cold exposure does the opposite right if you if you jump in a cold bath immediately after you go for a you know a run or do some sprints or do some heavy lifting, then you'll actually slow down the adaptation. Sauna does the opposite to some yep. degree. So, so for all of those reasons, if there's a sauna where I train, I always try and get in the sauna afterwards. I, I mean that's pretty much it. Like I've tried everything. It's people send me stuff to try, books to try, supplements to try, gadgets to try, um, and I, I'll gladly try them. But those are the things that sort of make up the bulk of what I do.
0: It's interesting that you measure activation energy. I think that's that's something that we can dive into a little bit. Because I think that it ties back into what we mentioned earlier. In terms of trying to follow things that are extremes. As with everything, like cold exposure. <laughs> I mean, for me, it would be horrendous right now. For example, to and for for most people, I presume to go outside in the rain to the sea and walk into the sea. But it sort of ties into that of the amount of energy required to do something that will create change. The requirement is just so high that picking something that's so big, but yields well such a, such a small result. I mean, for me personally, I have all these little toys because, because it's a hobby of mine. But I think for most people, again, it requires too much effort for the result. If you compare it to something like the boring basic stuff, like nutrition, sleep, etc., the blue light one, which, like you said, I think is the only one that's the most useful for most people.
1: It's super easy to do. Exactly. It's just like yeah. Two or three hours before bed, you just put on the blue light blockers. Can, like if you're yeah. thinking about micro, like little micro habits to start. Yeah, it's the, perfect, it's the perfect one to start with. Yeah. yeah,
0: and there's nothing to really think about. And you can still do your work if you need to. If you really need to look at your screen or use your laptop in the evening, then at least you can look at your screen and not be wide awake afterwards for the next three hours. But yeah, thank you very much, Tommy, for coming on and sharing your input on what will help someone really change. And I hope people take away all the important things not all the little things we discussed at the end <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because ultimately change t- takes time and for change to habit uh, for change to happen you need to make the things that will allow you to change a habit and to make something a habit it just can't be ultra difficult in the first place otherwise after 3 weeks you give up even though you've lost a whole bunch of weight but you don't have a social life anymore or you have to cook for three hours a day. And it's fine to play around with the little things. But if you're really looking to be healthy and feel good and lose weight, then start with the the big things that make you human in the first place, I guess. Where can people find you if they want to find you on social media? I know you mentioned that you're not a huge star on social media because you talk about things that are actually useful for people. But if people want to follow you, or follow your research, or see when you're talking next. Where can they find you?
1: Yeah, um, so I've my uh, my wife encouraged me to join Instagram, um, so I do do I do do that um, at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. Um, on Twitter, I don't do much on Twitter, but sometimes things pop up on there, or people include me in conversations. So that's at Dr. Ragnar, Ragnar being my middle name. Um, and then drragnell.com is also my website so as and when new speaking engagements go up they'll go on there. Podcasts, um, links to podcasts i've done go up there at with some significant delay um, <laughs> and, and there are some old blog posts and one day i'll have some time to start blogging again but there's, there's some old blog posts most of which i think are still relevant and good so they're they're on there too so those uh those three Areas are probably the best place to go. Instagram is where you will find me most frequently, and then the the website gets updated, you know, every two or three months.